It is always a pleasure to get invited back and uh, really appreciate the warm welcome from the students. We've had a great week already, still more to go, and uh, looking forward to uh, finishing out tomorrow and Friday with uh, the students. But thank you, Mark, for letting me come in tonight and, uh, and sharing the word. Looking forward to what the Lord's put on my heart. And let me tell you kind of what I'd like to do tonight in the time that we have uh, left. I Lately, I've been speaking... Uh, pretty extensively the last three or four years really on Bible prophecy. It's one of my great passions. Uh, of course, my driving passion is the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. And that's what Not By Works Ministries is all about when, since we started it in 1999. It's a family ministry. My, uh, one of my adult daughters works for us. My wife and I, of course, work together. And, uh, but it just seems like with, uh, for such a time as this, the Lord has really led us into this realm of Bible prophecy and allowed us to be a part of a lot of large conferences and, and interacting with a lot of uh, uh, key audiences across the country. And so uh, I wanted to let you know that uh, I am going to reserve time at the end uh, of our time to, tonight to answer questions or take questions or dialogue with you about uh, what's going on in the world. My latest book that just came out September 26th is called Spirit of the False Prophet, Rise of the Global Technocracy. I did bring about 15 of those. If anybody, after we're done tonight, is interested, you can see me, and i got a box of those over here. Uh, but our topic tonight is not going to be uh, on Bible prophecy. I'm going to continue with the themes that we've been talking about with the students uh, on the, the doctrine of salvation, sanctification, the gospel, those types of things. But i got to tell you, it's, it's, uh, in some ways it's refreshing to be talking about something other than Bible prophecy because we do five to six podcasts a week and TV and radio interviews and travel at conferences. I've just got back from a prophecy conference. I go again the first week of December. I'm back to Dallas for a prophecy conference. Uh, but I, I, part of me worries that we, you know, things are so urgent right now. The signs of the times are all around us, as I've talked about in my last three books, that I'm not positive we're going to even be able to get through the message tonight. And uh, I mean, that's okay with me. Would that be okay with you if we just met the Lord in the air in the middle of this? But because it's, uh, I believe time is short, uh, I do want to try to get through this as, as quickly as I can. I feel a little bit like that, uh, that hen uh, on the farmyard. You remember that story? This, this hen was just not getting much attention. All the other animals were getting all the attention. And she said, this isn't fair. I want people to notice me. And so she said, I know what I'll do. I'll go out and lay my egg right in the middle of the farmyard. And uh, so she did. But still, everybody kind of uh, met it with a collective yawn, ignored her, didn't do much. So she said, well, I know what I'll do. I'll go lay an egg right on the porch of the farmhouse. Surely then all the, the family, the kids, and the other animals will pay attention and notice me. And she did, but nobody really seemed to, to care or pay much attention. So finally she said, well, I know. If I go lay this egg right in the middle of the road, this highway that runs right in front of our farmhouse, a two-lane road, it's a busy road, and I know it'll be dangerous, but I'm going to lay it right out there in the middle of the road, and surely then the passers-by, everybody on the, the, the farm, everybody will notice me, and I'll be famous. But she thought, well, I better get a little advice first before I go to such an extreme measure. So she went in to see the rooster, and she said, here's what I'm planning. I want people to notice me. And I'm going to lay this egg right in the middle of the road, right in the middle of that highway, right in front of this farm. And the rooster said, well, do what you want. It's up to you, but i got to give you one piece of advice first. If you're going to do that, lay it on the line and get out quick. And so that, that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do tonight. I want to talk with you from Romans chapter 6 about the reasons for the Christian to do good works. 
All right? Reasons for the Christian to do good works. Why do you do what you do? Now, if we're honest, all of us come from a variety of backgrounds and influences. Maybe you were raised in a Christian home like I was, but maybe it was a a Baptist upbringing where it tended more towards lordship salvation, tended more toward the, the feeling that if you're not living for the Lord, maybe you never were saved and you better constantly doubt your salvation. Maybe you weren't raised in a Christian home. Maybe you came to faith as an adult. And there are different motivations that we have that are all kind of weaved together, and not all of them are biblical. Um, and so what motivates you to live a moral, godly life? I believe if Christians could ever get their hands around the true biblical motivation for godly living, the only proper motivation, at least according to God's Word, and we're going to take a look at a key passage about that tonight, I think it would revolutionize Christianity. The reason so many believers struggle with having a consistent walk with the Lord is because they have been going about it all wrong. And uh, I don't know, maybe this will uh, apply to you tonight. If not, maybe it'll apply to someone that you need to pass this message on to. But why do you do what you do? What are some reasons for the Christian to do good works? I'd like to start with just some background. Uh, we all are familiar with Romans, Paul's flagship letter, kind of his magnum opus. Uh, he wrote it in the winter of 56, 57 A.D. during his third missionary journey. He was in Corinth at the time, according to Acts chapter 20. And the overall theme of Paul's letter is justification by faith and sanctification by faith. He starts out in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, talking about from faith to faith. And as uh, one of my professors at Dallas used to say, he's with the Lord now, uh, the method of justification is always the same as the method of sanctification. One of Paul's first letters, the, the very first one, in fact, to Galatians, often referred to as a little Romans, uh, kind of his primer before the Lord and in, in the inspiration of the Spirit prompted him to write the larger, more detailed book of, of Romans. But in Galatians, Paul uh, talks about how, you know, having begun in the Spirit, why in the world would you now want to try to be made mature in the flesh? And that's the way a lot of us tend to focus on the Christian life. We understand theologically and intellectually that our salvation is by grace through faith. There's nothing we can do to earn it. It's not by works, as Titus 3.5 says. And yet, even though we know that that's how we came into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and our sins were forgiven, we then revert back to this works-based mentality, uh, a version of legalism according to which we try to prove something to ourselves and to God. And so the book of Romans really reminds us that it's all about faith. You're saved by faith and you're sanctified by faith. Romans is a very easy book to outline. It starts out in chapters 1 through 3 talking about what hopeless sinners we are without excuse. I've often pointed out if you picked up the book of Romans to start reading it and you got interrupted after chapter 3 and never got back to finish it, you'd be the most depressed, discouraged person on the planet. I mean, it's some pretty harsh stuff. We are sinners. We are without excuse. We need help, right? Some of us need more help than others, but we need help. Uh, but then you read on, and the good news is in verses or chapters 4 and 5 that uh, Jesus died for our sins. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated His love for us. That's the answer. Uh, but then it goes on to talk about in the section we're going to be looking at tonight, well, how should we then live? 
Okay, I've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. I've been saved by grace through faith. I'm born again. My eternal destiny is secure. But I've still got some time left to live, you know. Uh, even though we might wish this were the case, it's not the case that the minute we get saved, we don't get teleported straight to heaven. I mean, I'd be okay with that. Just poof, instant glorification. Wouldn't it be great if we went from justification to sanctification to glorification all in one fail swoop? But that's not God's plan. He's got a plan for us uh, on this earth to, with a job to do. You know, he, he left us here for a reason. The church has a purpose. And as members of the church, we have a purpose. And so how do we get from that moment when we pass from death to life and shall no longer ever come into judgment, we've been born again, to that moment when we're in glory with all of our saved loved ones and our Savior and in heaven for all of eternity? How do we get from point A to point B. And that's what chapters 6 through 8 of Romans are all about. How do you live the Christian life? And we're going to dip into there in chapter 6 in just a moment. And then uh, chapters 9 through 11 answer the question, what about Israel? Lest anybody think that God's forsaken Israel or forgotten Israel or turned his back on Israel, uh, Paul wants to remind us that's not the case. I'm going to be speaking uh, Sunday at my home church, Plum Creek Chapel, on uh, Romans chapter 11, Israel and the olive tree. I decided we just finished Nehemiah at Plum Creek Chapel, and I, I only have about six weeks left this year before with all my travel. And I thought rather than start a new book, I'm going to just finish out the year talking about Israel. You know, Israel's in the news, it's on everybody's mind. We've been talking about it at all the conferences I've been at. And so I wanted to clarify uh, Israel. And so we started out a couple of weeks ago talking about Israel and God's plan of the ages. Last week on Sunday, I preached a message entitled, Why Everyone's a Dispensationist, Whether You Realize It or Not. And then this Sunday, I'm going to talk about Israel and the olive tree. Uh, but that's what Romans 9 through 11 is all about. Paul explains without a doubt that God is not through with Israel. There's a future for national Israel. Uh, God has temporarily uh, brought blindness to Israel, but He's not through with them. Someday that deliverer is going to come out of Zion, as Romans 11, 25, and 26 tells us. Israel is going to be regathered into the land in belief this time, and the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is going to come back and rule and reign in perfect peace and justice for all of eternity. And what a day that will be. And then he finishes out this letter by simply talking about how can we all get along. You know, some practical advice for interacting with other uh, believers and other uh, church members. I'm sure that uh, here at uh, Beaumont Bible you don't have a problem with getting along or having any problems interrelationally, right? This, this is, this, I can tell you guys are perfect, right? Uh, no, we all, we all struggle with that, you know? Um, you know, sometimes I get frustrated. We deal with a lot of people in our ministry. We get a lot of phone calls, a lot of emails, a, a lot of uh, people coming up to our uh, booth. We were at a large church here. Um, I don't even remember when it was now, October, so last month. And uh, we had, uh, the whole family was on this particular trip. We had four of us working the two tables at our booth. 3,000 people in the room, 9,000 online. We were just slammed. And, you know, you always have, pe people are funny. I always say to my family, Man, people are really something. I'm glad I'm not a people. <laughs> you know? um, but we are. We are people. And, uh, and you, you deal with all kinds. And so Paul gives us some practical admonition about how to do that. When you get to the immediate context of chapter 6, it essentially transitions into, as I showed you on the outline, now what? Right? You're saved. You've trusted in Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And now, now what? What do, we, what do we do with this new life that we have in Christ. What does the Christian life uh, look like? Uh, really what he's talking about here is what about sin? Now I, I finished our session today with the uh, students 
uh, by talking about the awfulness of sin. You know, one of the things that the grace folks like myself, Pastor Mark and Brett and others get accused of sometimes is, uh, it's a straw man, but they claim, oh, you're soft on sin. Uh, we're not soft on sin. I think the grace position, which is the biblical position, actually uh, deals with the issue of sin in the life of a believer better than anything else. You know, Calvinists, uh, the Lordshippers, all they've got is you're not saved. You know, you're struggling with sin. Oh, well, obviously you're not saved. Just get saved again. Do it again. Try harder. Be better. Mean business this time. You know, get serious. You know, your commitment wasn't strong enough. You must not be saved. It's a pretty much an all or nothing game with them. We, ex we explain, as the Bible does, and as we're going to see in our passage tonight, that in fact, here's a newsflash for you. You ready? This is profound. You might want to write it down. Christians sin. Okay? There's the reality. How many of you are Christians? Raise your hand. How many of you sin? Raise your hand. Or hold, leave them up. Would you get a pen and piece of paper? Okay. Uh, of course we sin. And I don't mean to make light of it, because sin is serious. And uh, sin is not healthy. It's not good. It, it leads to great unpleasantness. Ultimately, it'll kill you. Sin leads to death, you know. If you're sinning, here's a, here's a word of advice. Stop. <laughs> It's not good. I'm not in favor of sin. I want to be on record for the recording. I am against sin. All right? Let's be clear. But it's just simply not the case that we can say, if you're struggling with sin, you must not be a believer. There's got to be a better answer than that. And indeed, there is. Paul describes in Romans 7 his own personal struggle with sin. And uh, the things that I know I uh, should be doing, sometimes I'm not really doing them. He says, the things that I really shouldn't do, I find myself doing them sometimes. Right? Uh, how do we deal uh, with sin? Uh, he goes on to explain in this section that if the law is obsolete, then where does our motivation uh, come from? And the reality is our new life in Christ is supposed to be lived by the Spirit, not the law. It's supposed to be lived by the law written on our hearts, so to speak, the indwelling Spirit, not some external code. In other words, we live our new life the same way we gained our new life, by the Spirit of God. And so the key verse uh, is here in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So Paul ends chapter 5 by reminding us that you can't out-sin God's grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And then one of the techniques that he uses in this uh, sort of uh, argument, theological argument in, in Romans. It's more of a rhetorical device, but uh, he sort of answers objections, and, and any time he says, uh, may it never be, or God forbid, in the old King James, he's always denying a false conclusion from a correct premise, and we like to do that. We, we get the premise right sometimes, but we, we then take the implications of that way too far. And Paul says essentially, yeah, it's absolutely true. You cannot outsend God. And you cannot outsend His grace. There's nothing you can do as a believer that can undo what Jesus did for you in that punctiliar moment in time when you trusted Christ and you became a Christian. That happens at a one-time moment in time. There was a moment when you were not a believer, something happened, and you were saved. What was it? Well, you placed your faith in Jesus Christ and were born again. And at that moment... Your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You become uh, part of the family of God. You're positionally justified uh, before a holy God. You're reconciled. The, the enmity between you and God is broken down. Uh, Thirty-three different things all happen spiritually in that one instance, according to Lewis Berry Schaefer. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about that moment. And if that's the case, and you can't out-sin God, then someone might say, well, great. 
I'll just keep on sinning. Grace is a good thing, right? And if I sin, I get more grace. Well, I'll just keep on sinning. Paul says, no, 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 no. You're missing the point. That's not exactly, that's not at all what you should uh, do. So the question I want us to answer is, why do you do what you do? Let's take a closer look at that question. Let me give you uh, some of the reasons that a lot of people would put on their list. Maybe some of these are reasons that you think about. Maybe you haven't ever written them down, but if you're honest, you'll say, yeah, I, I kind of try to do what I do for some of these reasons. Uh, for some people, uh, it's to earn God's favor. It's not enough that He sent His only Son to die in your place. It's not enough that He gave you the gift of salvation absolutely free, no strings attached, nothing you have to do to earn it, nothing you have to do to keep it. If it's not free, it's not grace. If it's not grace, it's not free. That's what grace means, free gift. Romans 5 uh, talks about that. Uh, Romans 4, he talks about how uh, if it's not of works, it's, it's, it's not grace. Romans 11, same idea. Repeatedly, they don't go together. And so it's not enough for some people to think, to, to realize just how much God loves you. They still think somehow they've got to earn God's favor. And so they do good works uh, to try to earn God's favor, not realizing that their measly good works are uh, not all that impressive to a holy God. You know, the best thing you can do is uh, nothing to a God who's perfect, the creator of the universe. Uh, some people do good works to try to earn their way into heaven, right? They've fallen into the works-based trap, the age-old enemy of grace. Uh, what Satan's biggest lie is, is that you need to do good works to get into heaven. And they're trying to simply earn their way into heaven. That's their motivation. I've got to measure up. I've got to be good. They forget that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. That's the theme verse for our ministry. That's where we get our, our name, NBW Ministries, not by works. Same in Greek, it's the same exact phrase in, in the New King James. It's translated not of works, but it's the same exact phrase in Greek. Uh, here in two, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, not, uh, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, or not by works, lest anyone should boast. And yet so many people think that good works uh, is the means by which we're going to get entrance into heaven. It's like they think that God grades on the curve. And they'll say, well, I may not be perfect, but I'm better than most. Or I'm in the 90th percentile. Surely that's good enough, right? They think you know, that somehow they can earn their way to heaven, as if you've got to reach a certain threshold in amount of good works, and if you fall just short of that, you're not going to get in. I mean, imagine missing heaven by one good work. You know, you live your life, you're in the 90th percentile, way better than most people. You get to heaven, you're met by proverbial St. Peter. I know that's not theologically sound, but give me some latitude. And he said, well, let me look at your, your sheet here. Oh, wow, man. 12,694 good works. Wow, that's impressive. Unfortunately, you need 12,695. Shoot, you're going the other direction, right? That's what, that's what some people think. It's just about stacking up the good works. God's not going to say to some people, if you only had done one more kind deed, I'd let you in, but you didn't measure up. Because as Jesus said, the standard is perfection. That makes it simple. You stand before God, are you perfect? Come on in. If you're not perfect, adios, amigos, right? And the only way to be perfect, the only way to meet that standard is to have the perfection of Christ 
imputed to you. See, that's the whole redemptive plan of God. God uh, created mankind in His image, which means we have volitional free will. He didn't create us as robots or automatons or people that have no mind. We, had to, we have choices to make. And He loved us. He wanted fellowship with us. It was great, but He did have to give us a choice. And so He put one tree in the garden that said, that's a no-no. And He warned us and said, don't eat from that tree. Whatever you do, don't eat from that tree because when you do, you'll die. And I love you too much. So I'm warning you. It wasn't some kind of a, a sick test or toying with us like He's dangling some temptation. No, no, no. The Lord doesn't tempt anybody. It was a warning. It was, I'm trying to protect you like a good father, right? And of course, what did we do? We took that free will, marched right over and took a giant bite out of that apple. Now at that point, God who is God, He can't lie, He's faithful, He's trustworthy, He's reliable. He, he had no choice but to keep His word. I mean, a lot of people think, well, why didn't God at that point say, ah, no big deal, forget it. I was just kidding about that death thing. It's not a big deal. Everybody makes mistakes. Don't worry about it. Forget it. If God had done that, He would have proven Himself to be a liar, and we couldn't trust anything else He ever said. But He kept His word. But then He took the extraordinary step to rescue us from the predicament we got ourselves in, right? I mean, it, God didn't cause us to sin. He didn't force us to sin. He was doing everything He could to prevent it. But we used our free will to rebel against the Holy God, and then He took the extraordinary measure of solving our problem, paying a debt He didn't know when we owed a debt we could never pay. And the way He did that was sending His eternal Son and our Savior to the earth to put on human flesh, to live a perfect, holy, sinless life, so that He was the only human being that ever walked the earth that had room on His shoulders to pay somebody else's sin debt. I mean, as much as I like you, or even though I don't know you, as much as I might want to be kind-hearted enough to pay your sin debt, I couldn't do it. You know why? Because I got my own sins to worry about. Uh, Brett couldn't pay for my sins. He's got his own uh, sins to worry about, and we can talk about that later. But anyway, uh, we, we can't pay for each other's sins, so either we all have to die, which would have been perfectly just for a holy God to do exactly what He said would happen, or God could redeem us. God could rescue us from the penalty of sin, and that's what He did. So Jesus died on the cross to pay the sin penalty for the whole world, including me and you, rose from the dead the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and in so doing purchased life. And now He offers it freely to all who will come. Now He doesn't force it on anybody. In the same way God didn't force us to sin, He doesn't force us to receive the free gift. A free gift, by definition, has to be freely received. If you force it on somebody, that's not a gift. That's a, you know, a compulsion. That's, a, that's hate. Forced love is not love at all. And so He makes a universal offer. Come one uh, come all. And when we accept that gift, paid for in full by the blood of Christ, in that instant we become what? Perfect. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us the same way the sin of Adam was imputed to the whole world. So you're not going to earn your way into heaven. A lot of people do, what's, uh, do good works trying to earn God's love. Maybe they grew up in an environment where it was a very performance-oriented world and they had to earn the love of their father or their mother or, or somebody else. And so they project that onto the Creator, Almighty God, and they think, i got to earn God's love. He won't like me if I'm not good. But again, as we said earlier, God has already shown the greatest love you could ever show. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, uh, and He died for all of us, and we're all sinners. So that means the murderers, the, the worst of the worst. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? Uh, don't ever think that 
you know, it was easier for Christ to die for you than it was other people. We're all in the same boat. And He died for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting love. That's the definition of love. Selflessness. Unconditional. Agape. By this we know love, that He laid down His life uh, for us. Some people think they've got to do good works to prove uh, to themselves or to prove to others that they're really saved. This is the, the biggest one. This is what we've been talking about this week at the school. Uh, we talked about to Calvinism uh, yesterday, I think it was, and this notion that, yeah, you might be saved by faith, but if you don't perform, if you don't measure up, if you don't live out your Christian life, you were never saved to begin with. So you got to prove it. you got to have evidence. you got to bear fruit. That's how you really know if you're going to heaven. You examine your life. And if there's sufficient fruit, well, then you're in. If not, there's not. I don't know about you. Uh, if I looked to my life to validate whether or not I'm going to heaven, I'm going to doubt my salvation every day because uh, I'm not perfect practically. In Christ, I'm perfect, thankfully. And someday when I stand before a holy God, He's going to say, come right or in because I'm with Him. <laughs> I'm with that guy. He's my, he's my Savior. He's the one that covers me with His blood. Uh, but in a practical sense, as we all agreed a moment ago, we, we still sin. And so if I'm looking at my life to validate whether I'm a Christian, uh, I'm in big, uh, big trouble. Uh, so none of these things really measure up. We could go on. We could come up with others. Maybe I, I'm doing good works to please others. I want to look good. You know, I, I hold this karmic view of life uh, you know, that what goes around comes around. If I do good, maybe think good things will happen to me, this retributive idea. If you're a young person, maybe it's to make mom or dad happy. But forget it. None of that measures up. There are some biblical reasons for the Christian to do good works. These are the real reasons, you might say. Now, in the back of my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, which I don't have any of those with me, but the students are using that book uh, this week, I have an appendix that lists at least 30, I think it is, 25 or 30, biblical motivations for the believer to do good works, but I just want to point out a few uh, based on Romans chapter uh, 6. So the first thing I want you to realize is one of the real reasons that we should do good works that should motivate us is that new is better than old. That's a general principle. New is better than old, and Paul makes that argument in verse 4. He says, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The newness of life. See, our old life was sold under sin, desperately wicked, separated from a holy God. We've got a problem. Remember chapters 1 through 3. There's a big problem there. Uh, and nobody can claim I'm not a sinner. We're all in uh, the same boat. And when you get saved, if you're in Christ, if by faith you've trusted Christ and been declared righteous, declared perfectly righteous before a holy God, then, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. In Ephesians and Colossians, he uses the new man, old man dichotomy to describe what the new life is all about. He says, put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. This is a big point that he starts out by making. Why, having been made new, would you want to go back and put on these old, tattered, torn, dirty clothes? Why, why not live like the new life 
that you are. I mean, would you rather be driving a brand new shiny Cadillac or, you know, a 1971 VW Beetle with, you know, 500,000 miles on it all rusted and falling apart? My first, my second car actually when I was 16 was a 71 Super Beetle. It wasn't quite as bad as that, but it was close. Would you rather live in a brand new million dollar mansion or an old dilapidated condemned shack? Uh, would you rather wear a $1,500 tailor-made Armani suit or some old out-of-style 1970s leisure, leisure suit? I want to thank Brett for, uh, for offering me his high school yearbook photo here. Appreciate that. But it's a, good, it's a good, good contrast, you know. Yeah, A or B, you know. Yeah, that's the one. That's the one. Yeah. A or B? You kind of like that eye doctor exam. Which is better, this or this? I'm pretty sure it's that. Yeah. <laughs> We've seen enough. We've seen enough. The second reason that uh, we should do good works, as explained by Paul, is that free is better than enslaved. Free is better than enslaved. He goes on to say, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. So we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been set free from sin. Uh, the body of sin might be done away with. That phrase, done away with, this is the New King James. It's one word in Greek, katergeo. It means to be rendered inoperable. It's made of no effect. And so when we go back and sin, we're essentially resuscitating that old man that Christ has already put to death. In Galatians 2, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live by faith, I live by, uh, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says, having been set free from sin, we're now slaves of righteousness. I think one of the best uh, illustrations I've ever heard of this notion of willfully, consciously choosing to enslave ourselves again to sin comes from one of the greatest theologians of all time, Barney Fife. And so uh, I want to show this sh short four-minute clip, and then I think you'll get the point. I think I've got the volume ready to go here. Let's see.
his liberty, his pursuit of happiness. No more carefree hours. No more doing whatever you want, whenever you want. No more peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> the man in prison is under 24-hour surveillance. All his activities laid out for him until he has paid his debt to society. Yes? Why can't you have peanut butter in prison? <laughs> It definitely is no fun when that iron door clangs shut on you. Uh, we laugh, and, and we love Andy Griffith. Uh, as you know, if you watch uh, the show, uh, that's a recurring theme. Poor Andy just constantly gets himself caught in that old jail cell. But, you know, when we sin as Christians, it's, it's like walking back into our own jail cell and slamming that door behind us, and there we are. We're stuck, right? So... Paul says, he who has died has been freed from sin. Free is better than enslaved. Why would you want to enslave yourself again? Number three, living is better than dead. Living is better than dead. Notice, going back to verses 1 and 2, how shall we who died to sin live any longer therein? Remember what Paul's opening question was, should we keep on sinning? Absolutely not. Why would you want to live like a dead man? Right? Why would you want to walk around like a dead man? You get to verse 11, which really is one of the key passages in Romans. And Paul says, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I mentioned to the students in a different context this afternoon that you know Romans is a powerful book. It's rich. It's 16 chapters. It's one of... Uh, the longer books in the New Testament. It's filled with incredible doctrinal information. 
But would it surprise you to know that you don't get to the first imperative, imperative is a command in Greek, it's a mood in the Greek language that means this is a command, until you get all the way to chapter 6, verse 11. This is the first imperative in Romans. The very first thing that God said in the inspiration of the Spirit was worth commanding is, is this, reckon yourselves dead to sin. Reckon in Greek is legetsamai, it means to consider, to to calculate, to focus on, to, to let your mind dwell on. That's one of the definitions in BDAG, to let your mind dwell on it. In other words, I don't think we spend enough time recognizing that we're alive and we used to be dead. If we did, we wouldn't want to be dead again. We wouldn't want to walk around like a zombie, right? We wouldn't we wouldn't want to go back into the old man's lifestyle and live uh, like that. Oh. Uh, Paul said in Ephesians 1 that having been dead in our trespasses and sins, we've been made alive. And, and if you think about Romans chapter 7, that passage I uh, kind of summarized for us earlier, he ends that chapter by saying, you know, remember the struggle, the things I know I should do, I don't do, the things I know I shouldn't do, I end up doing. Then he says what? O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And there's an interesting little uh, historical context to that statement that I think the Roman audience would have understood, and that is there was a, a, a form of capital punishment in the Roman Empire uh, according to which if you committed a capital offense, you would, you would have a cadaver, a dead body strapped to your your back and you were forced to walk around until you caught the diseases and ended up dying yourself. That's what Paul's talking about. You know, I've got this body of death on me and, 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 and that's what he, when he goes back and sins and caters to the flesh instead of the new man, uh, when, he's, when he's living like the zombie, the dead man, it's like he's strapped this cadaver on. I want you to remember that word picture the next time you're struggling with some fleshly uh, issue. And, and ask yourself, would I rather be living or dead, right? Because we've been made alive in Christ. And then royalty is better than poverty. Royalty is better than poverty. I think we can all certainly understand the practical nature of that. Uh, John tells us in John 1.12 that if we've trusted Christ, believed in Him, we've become a child of God. Did you know you're a child of the King? You're part of the family of God. We talked about that today with the students. John puts it this way, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. This was an important feature in the Apostle John's writings. He talked about it at the beginning of his gospel and then 60 years later in his epistle. But no child of the king should act like that. That's the idea. Remember who you are, right? Why as a child of the king do you want to go around living like a pauper? And then finally, light it's better than darkness. This is a motif that's repeated throughout Scripture. You know, um, if you've raised kids, uh, we have uh, six children. Uh, I like most of them. And uh, they, no, I love them all. Today's one of, my, one of my son's birthdays, by the way. I turned 22 today. Our kids range from 29 down to uh, 6, 15. And uh, they all, all of them, loved Legos. Now, we have so many Legos. In fact, the son I was just mentioning, he's gone and dug them out of the attic, and he's re-putting them back together. And my brilliant wife encouraged him way back when to save all the packages, and he's repackaging them, making sure they're all there, 
He's had to go on eBay a couple times to buy one little block here or there that was missing. And he's selling these things for like $150, $200. It's unreal. Um, but back in the day when these kids were younger, uh, I didn't like Legos very much. There's nothing worse than getting up in the middle of the night, walking across a dark family room, and stepping on a Lego. That's when you'll lose your sanctification, <laughs> let me tell you. Um, and that's because light is better than darkness, right? Paul says in Ephesians 5, For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the world. So walk as children of the light. Um, this is one of John's motifs in his first letter. Uh, he says, uh, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship uh, with one another. So the bottom line is this. Light is better than darkness, uh, and good behavior always works out better than bad behavior. Whatever metaphor you want to use, Paul is trying to explain that do you not know that to whom you present yourselves as slave to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? It comes down to the fact that righteousness, righteous behavior works out better than uh, sinful behavior. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? What was so good about those things that you makes you want to go back and do them? The end of those things is death, right? Why would you want to live like you used to? How did that work out for you, right? And, and yet we, we somehow have been conditioned to think that God's commandments are like these type, some type of uh, you know, cosmic killjoy. It's like God just wants us to be miserable. He wants us to not have any fun at all. No, no, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says His commands are not burdensome, therefore our own good, just like they were in the garden. God loved us enough, like a, a loving father. You know, we have a four-year-old, a granddaughter who lives with us. We just adore. She's uh, just such a blessing. And, um, you know, I'm so much of a better parent now than I was when my kids were younger. And I feel sorry for some of my older kids because I was so young and dumb. Uh, but by God's grace, I've come a long way, and we just love, love little Zoe. And, uh, you know, we, we put safeguards in place, not because we're wanting to make her unhappy, you know. We put a gate at the top of the stairs, because uh, especially when she was a toddler, younger, we didn't want her tumbling down the basement stairs, you know. We put little plastic things on the Stove knobs, I hate those things. They're such an inconvenience. But you know what? I don't want her reaching up there and turning that knob. We put little things on the doorknobs so she can't sneak out of the house. I hate those things too. Or make it harder to open the door. Uh, but I don't, we don't do those things to bother her, to make her uh, you know, not like us or to make her life more frustrated. We do them to protect her, right? So God says, don't eat from that tree. We did it, and yet he still, as we talked about, reached out in love to save us. And the same thing is true for all of the, the guidelines that he gives us in his word. This is the roadmap. This is the blueprint, right? And uh, his commands are not burdensome. Uh, we know 
that righteous behavior leads to good things, and he who pursues evil pursues it to his own death. Righteous behavior is better than sinful behavior. If you live according to the flesh, Romans 8, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. So why do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? For those who don't know the Lord, and I, I assume and uh, uh, would assume that most folks in this church on a midweek Bible study at a Bible teaching, grace-oriented church do, but I don't know all of you, so let me just be clear. If you're here tonight and you don't know for sure where you stand with the Lord, you're not positive you're going to heaven, you can be sure, right? You don't have to wait. You don't get eternal life when you die. If you're waiting to find out if you have eternal life when you die, it's too late. <laughs> you need to know now. You get eternal life the moment you believe the gospel by trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. So stop trying to earn your place in heaven. Uh, you know, stop, stop trying to do what's right for all the wrong reasons and recognize that only Jesus can save you. And those who already have been saved by grace through faith, uh, just consider some of the arguments that we've talked about tonight from Paul's uh, writings. New is better than old. Do you want to walk around in tattered old, torn up clothes? Uh, tell you what. Keep that picture of bread in a leisure suit in your mind. That'll drive anybody away from sinning, let me tell you. Free is better than enslaved. Why would you want to go back into prison? We've got all the incredible blessings of the Lord available to us. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Living is better than dead. You don't want to walk around like a zombie. Royalty is better than poverty. We are a child of the king, and light is better than darkness. So what's the takeaway? Remember who you are in Christ. It's about our position. You are a child of the King, so act like it. Act like it. Let me pray for us, and then I'll transition into some prophecy stuff and just see if you have any questions uh, or thoughts on that. Father, thank you for this reminder from Romans uh, about our real motivation for living out our days as we await your soon return and we try to make a difference in this crazy, mixed-up world. I pray that if there's one here tonight that is really struggling in their walk, that you would gently nudge them back toward you, help them to recognize who they are in Christ, and may your discipline uh, be uh, gentle. And Lord, if there happens to be one here or possibly listening to this uh, video uh, at a later time that doesn't know you, we pray that the Spirit of God would convict them of their sin and their need for a Savior, and in simple childlike faith they would trust in Jesus Christ who died and rose again for their sins as the only one who can forgive their sin and give them the gift of eternal life. And it's in His precious name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, if anybody does need to leave, you know, it won't hurt my feelings in the, in the slightest, but I just always like to give an opportunity for questions, especially because the world that I've been living in for several years now is, is a uh, deep dive into Bible prophecy and current events and the the uh, globalist uh, conspiracy to try to take over the world, but as the Bible says, uh, they will happen. And so my latest book that just came out September 26 is the third in a three-book kind of triad that I've been working on for 17 years. It's called Spirit of the False Prophet, Rise of the Global Technocracy. And it's all about the false prophet's role in the coming seven-year tribulation and how he is going to work at the behest of the Antichrist, who together they're working at the behest of Satan. It's that unholy trinity, right? 
Satan, the false, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And they're going to be working together to try to take over the world. And it's going to be a full-spectrum planetary control. And the only way they can do that is through technology, because Satan's not omniscient, omnipresent, or omnipotent. And so uh, I lay all that out and give you all kinds of uh, details about uh, what's happening today in the world of AI and technology and just some stunning things that are happening to set the stage for that. And this book builds on the previous two books, which came out in 2022, uh, one of them uh, one year ago uh, in October and the other one last year in March, uh, Volume 1 and Volume 2. And these outline the Luciferian conspiracy, which is Satan working with evil spirits and human accomplices together as a conspiracy to try to take over the world. It's right out of Psalm 2. It's biblical. Uh, Satan was trying to take over the world since he got kicked out of heaven. That coup attempt didn't end well, so he set his sights on the earth, and today the earth is the devil's playground. The whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. Um, he's the god of this age, the prince of the power of the air, and he is slowly orchestrating uh, a major takeover that the Bible tells us will reach its climax during the final seven-year period when we will have a full-spectrum tyrannical control. Uh, thankfully, we won't be here during the tribulation period, but we very well may be here during the beginnings of the one world system. You know, the Bible never promises that we will be raptured before things get tough. And such a thought is actually quite naive and it, and it evidences a, a very embarrassing form of Western American exceptionalism because in 2,000 years of church history, our brothers and sisters in Christ have suffered unspeakable persecution and martyrdom all over the world. And, and just because we've been blessed to live in the greatest country ever doesn't mean we're going to escape that type of persecution. Now, I hope that the Lord comes back soon. But He alone knows the timetable, and if the Lord waits much longer, I believe we're on the cusp of the twilight of America, and I think we could very well be raptured as one-world citizens. The Antichrist is not going to usher in a one-world system. He won't have time. He's going to take control of a one-world system. He's going to step into a one-world system. And so uh, it just remains to be seen uh, how that uh, plays out. So I explain all of that uh, in uh, these two books. and. Uh, I did bring, I think, a couple of each of those, and I think I brought 15 of the, the brand new one, Spirit of the False Prophet. So, um, you know, I'd love to answer any questions or hear your comments or thoughts about anything that we've talked about tonight or anything about uh, Bible prophecy. So I'll open the floor with that. Brett. Yeah, great question. So I was at a uh, Prophecy Watchers conference with 17 other uh, prophecy speakers the weekend that that happened. Um, and it was unbelievable, uh, the, the, the incredible feeling in the air. And uh, we kind of, there was a thousand people there and, and the director of the conference kind of shifted the plan for Saturday morning and created a, a panel discussion. Some of the world's experts on Israel were there and we were able to talk to them and ask questions. Um, I have several contacts that we, uh, that we interview and, and are part of our podcast ministry, and one of them had texted me late Friday night and told me, and he, he had the news within minutes, he has uh, contacts in Israel, and told me that, uh, that Hamas had launched an attack. And uh, it was late, I had spoken that day, it was those, these conferences are long days, early to late at the resource table. And so I quickly looked over at Fox News, CNN.com, places like that, didn't see any coverage. And I thought, well, you know, I'm not sure what's going on, but I'll go on to sleep. And next morning, of course, it was all over the news. So he, he was on top of it, my contact. 
But uh, my take is that I believe this is the beginning of the final phase and all the preparatory wars that will lead into the tribulation period. Now, I can't guarantee that. This is just my studied opinion. Um, but I don't think it's going to simmer down. I think we're headed straight into Gog and Magog, and that means the rapture's got to be close. And uh, I think uh, we need to understand that uh, Israel is never going to give up the land. It's God's land, not Israel's land. It's the Holy Land. Uh, it's stunning to me that uh, if you look at a map, in fact, I showed this at a conference I did last week. If you look at a map of that region, you've got a tiny little piece of real estate that's Israel, and everything all around it is Muslim. And yet these Muslims will not be satisfied. They've got to have that last piece of real estate, and it's because it's not about real estate. <laughs> it's about the Holy Land. They want that special piece of land, and God's not going to give it to them. In fact, Israel's foes are all going to be vanquished, and, and when Christ comes back at the end of the tribulation, their kingdom's going to be as big as it's ever been. To this day, Israel has never occupied the full extent of the land as promised in Genesis 15, 18. They've had the rights to it, but they've never occupied it all. It's 300,000 square miles, and when Christ takes the throne, that's going to be the boundaries of, of the capital city of not just Israel, but the world, uh, in a one-world system of peace, righteousness, and justice. So I really believe that it's going to get worse, not better. I think... Uh, We've got ships on, in three regions right now. We cannot fight three wars right now. We can't do it. No way. We can't be in the South China Sea, the Mediterranean, up in the Ukraine area all at the same time. Um, I think the my view, as I've explained in these three books, is that the, this is all uh, agent provocateurs. This isn't organic. This was planned. It seems self-evident to me that the Hamas attacks were planned. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of evidence that as they've intercepted cell phones now that it was in the works for at least seven years. This wasn't just one day some paragliders decided, hey, let's attack Israel. You know, the toughest you know, military in the world. I mean, the IDF is so powerful that it's been said repeatedly that if a cockroach crosses the border from Gaza, the IDF knows how long its antennas are. That, that's, that's, that's the IDF. And, and yet we're expected to think that somehow they were just taking a break, they went to get some coffee, and all of a sudden the worst attack in the history of modern Israel. If, if you extrapolate in terms of uh, population, what happened to Israel on October 7th would make 9-11 look like nothing. I mean, it would be more akin to 40 to 50,000 Americans dying in one incident, if by comparison. This was a huge deal, biggest since 1948. And so I don't think it's going to simmer down. I don't think it's going to die down. I think it's going to, we're going to get drawn into it. I think uh, there are rogue elements out there that have been wanting World War III, as I talk about in my book, since the turn of the 20th century. They've been trying to bring down America. World War I was provocateured. World War II was provocateured. Um, Vietnam was provocateured. And uh, they are doing everything they can to destroy America. America is the one nation standing in Satan's way of ushering in a one-world system. You know, we have too many guns, too many Bibles, too many Christians, although we're getting fewer and fewer, sadly. Um, uh, this country's not what it used to be, but it still a, poses a big problem for the Luciferian elite that are trying to take over the world. And so I think this is just the beginning of it. I think we need to stand with Israel. Uh, we need to, regardless of how it happened, whether there was an inside job, and I'm confident there was, and I'm not alone in that. I think a lot of people think that. Uh, just is implausible 
to think that on the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, they would be caught with their pants down. You know, just none of it makes sense. Um, so regardless, though, they're uh, our allies, and even though they're in the land in unbelief today, and even though their leaders are not believers and they're not making wise decisions, uh, God has a plan for Israel, and we need to, to you know, support them, and they need to wipe Hamas off the, off the map. And I think, you know, Israel's not perfect, and certainly some of their leaders are part of the Luciferian uh, agenda. We know that in the same way that part of America's leaders are part of that agenda, the globalist agenda. Notwithstanding that, they are still doing their best to, to minimize uh, collateral damage. You know, Israel's history is to do their best to avoid collateral damage. The terrorists' history is to seek purposefully collateral murder. <laughs> and there's a difference between collateral murder and collateral damage. Uh, war is terrible. Innocent people die in war. I really believe that Israel is doing their best to try to minimize that. Hamas, by extension, is not. And so I think we need to stand with them. But I, I think I would be ready. Chapter 9 of this new book is all about preparedness, something we've talked about for 20 years. I've preached it, uh, taught it at preparedness expos. And we have an NBW preparedness guide that's free at our website. Now's the time to be ready. Now, Proverbs 22.3 says, A wise man sees trouble coming and prepares for it. So believers or unbelievers alike who stick their head in the sand and say, ah, whatever happens, you know, God will take care of me. Yeah, He will, but He also doesn't, that doesn't preclude us from making wise choices. You know, Proverbs says, the horse is prepared for battle, deliverance is from the Lord. It's both. We, we trust the Lord, that's number one. But He expects us to see that train coming down the highway. And, and so I think uh, these are very tenuous times, not trying to scare people at all. I just, I've been studying this a long time and and I just, I think uh, it's going to get worse before it gets better. 2025 uh, is what the Luciferians have been targeting since the 1930s. I have a whole chapter in Volume 2, the Red Book, about the Luciferian timeline. And it's, it's really stunning, the number of references to 2025 going back 100 years. Alice Bailey, who was a Satan worshiper, she and her husband started the Lucifer Publishing Company in the 30s. I think they started that in the 40s, might have been the 30s, but anyway, she wrote uh, 10,000 pages, most of which were uh, published posthumously, and she claims in these 10,000 pages that she was channeling a demon named uh, uh, Master DK, and in her 10,000 pages of writings, 15 times, she says that this demon told her that 2025 was the year the Luciferians were going to usher in the one world system. Doesn't mean it's going to happen because Satan's not in charge. God's in charge, and God's the ultimate arbiter of the timetable. But God's word tells us there is going to come a one world system that will first be tyrannical and ruled at the behest of Satan, and ultimately ruled in perfect peace and justice by Christ Himself. So, what I see is the Luciferian game plan that is leaking out, and it's not even leaking out anymore. The World Economic Forum, the uh, you know, the uh, Klaus Schwab's of the world, the World Health Organization, Bill Gates, uh, you all know Harari. I have a whole chapter on him in, in this uh, latest book. Uh, I think he's one of the leading candidates. He fits, checks all the boxes for the false prophet. Uh, you know, they're all saying Agenda 21 that was established in 92, Agenda 2030 that was established uh, earlier this uh, century. They're targeting. This is their decade. They think they're so close they can taste it. They are doing everything they can to pull out all the stops and say, we want control, and they're going to have to bring America down to make that happen. So 
I hope that doesn't happen. I hope that my children and grandchildren can, can live in a, in a free country, but uh, I, I think it's the time to be, be prepared. So, sorry. Doesn't take much to prompt me into a prophetic diatribe. Yeah. Would you elaborate on what you mean by being prepared? Yeah, so I think there are three primary things to consider when being prepared. Food, really four. Food, water, protection, and shelter, right? You can go a long way with those four things, right? Um, so when something happens and we don't know what it is, it could be an economic collapse, it could be a terrorist attack, it could be a natural disaster, whether real or geoengineered, it could be anything. But whatever, it could be multiple things, an EMP, who knows? There's a lot of weapons in the arsenal of the bad guys. But when that happens, you're going to very quickly see that life as we know it is not the same. You're not going to be able to run down to Walmart and get supplies. So I think people need to be self-sufficient. You need to think like uh, it was in the pioneer days, you know, when Ma and Pa and Laura Ingalls and the bunch headed west and, you know, they pitched a tent or built a cabin and if they didn't kill a deer that day, they didn't eat. You know, if they didn't have a creek nearby, they didn't have water. So I just think you need to think in the rawest terms of what if and have eyes wide open. Now, it doesn't mean you move to a mountaintop and, you know, dig a, a cave and sing Kumbaya and wait for Jesus. We've still got a life to live. We've, got a, we've trained our kids. We've been awake to the, the world as it really exists for 17 years. Uh, I tell the story in volume one here of kind of how, how the Lord uh, kind of woke us up. Uh, but, uh, you know, we've told our kids, hey, we want you to live life. You know, we, we are eyes wide open. We are not dropping out of society, but we're doing it with the keen awareness that we could feed ourselves, we could protect ourselves. And by the way, you're not protecting yourselves from the ultimate bad guys. <laughs> You're protecting yourself from the marauding mobs and the civil unrest and those types of things. That's what you need to be, you know, concerned about. Uh, and then you've got uh, shelter, you know. Uh, in Texas, you're in pretty good shape. You don't have to worry about heat. Um, and and, 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 and I, I know it gets pretty nasty hot down here in the Gulf Coast. I went to high school and college in Houston, so I get it. But you can always fan yourself or, you know, take off clothes. You can only put on so many clothes. And... And you get some pretty bitter cold in the mountains, and so you got to think about wood burners and ways to stay warm in a in a disaster. Uh, but I just wouldn't I wouldn't count on the government to to protect us. I think nations rise and fall. We've got six thousand years of human history to see it. America, in, in the in the grand scheme of things, it has been on life support for a long time. We're way outlived our our day, and. Um, and it's only by the God, grace of God that we're here, and, and we may be here longer. It's up to the Lord. But certainly would not surprise me if the Lord allowed judgment to come, given what's happening in our country lately. So food, water, shelter, protection, those are the big ones. Somebody else? Any other questions? The latest book is, is a lot about AI and technology. That's what technocracy is, ruled by technology. Satan's not omniscient, so he's going to have to use technology to take control. It's right out of Revelation 13, the ultimate mark of the beast system. Uh, I think the foundation is being laid for that. So there's a lot in there about just kind of being aware of the way things work and how we're being hacked and tracked and that kind of stuff. So that's, that's a, lot of, a lot of useful stuff 
uh, stuff in there. Yeah, Brett. Yeah, so, you know, we've been tracking that for a long time. Uh, I have a whole chapter uh, that deals with that extensively. Uh, one of my contacts is a top-level technologist. He's on about every two weeks. We call it uh, our, our focus on technology. AI is way past what most people think it is. Um, it's pervasive. It's in everything we do. Every technology behind the scenes is using it. It's way beyond just the Internet. and algorithms and your smartphones and stuff in your operating systems that's all nothing the real issue is hospitals using AI police departments using AI fire departments using AI our government using AI polling places using AI I mean it's everywhere and AI of course stands for artificial intelligence it's essentially uh, the merging of man and machine and it's it's this uh, attempt of Satan to play God, he, he hates humanity because we're made in the image of God and, and we're image bearers for God, so he hates us. He's a murderer, he wants to kill humanity, and his human accomplices hate humanity too. In my chapter on Yuval Noah Harari, I talk about how he says most um, uh, human, humans are redundant, we don't need them except as lab rats, that's his phrase. He says we just need them to collect data, but other than that we don't need them. They're just useless breathers, we've got to get rid of them. And, and replace them with something better. They think, Satan thinks he can do better than God at creating. He'll never be able to, he's self-deceived, but he's trying to be the creator. And God spoke the world into existence out of nothing, ex nihilo, just with a word. Uh, Satan's not gonna be able to do that, but he's doing everything he can technologically to create life. Uh, we just reported on our podcast this morning, uh, we taped it last night, uh, but it aired this morning at six o'clock, that there's a uh, big company, I forget which one it is, but you can listen to the podcast, uh, that just hired the first embodied AI as their CEO. Literally sits in the boardroom, literally makes decisions. The only thing he's not doing yet is hiring and firing, but they're still improving that AI, and eventually he'll do that. Um, I, we see it all over the place in the job market. It's going to be stunning. Some estimates are in the next year, one to two years, we'll see 80% unemployment. Because why in the world wouldn't companies who care about the bottom line want to dole out to AI something that they just pay one fee for a software package and rather than having to pay salary year after year and benefits and all the high cost that comes with employment. Uh, it's any business's biggest overhead is employees. So we're seeing more and more companies go to AI news outfits, AI is writing news. What you see on Fox News and CNN is all AI driven. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a real factor and it's right out of the pro prophetic scriptures as I explain in this book. It's, it's Satan's attempt to usurp God and create an artificial world, an artificial uh, intelligence. We've got two kids uh, that are still in college, my son who's a senior and my, uh, one of my daughters who's a sophomore both of them were affected by AI. My daughter went to uh, Grand Canyon University her freshman first semester. She was studying graphic design and uh, the department chair gathered together all the incoming freshmen that were majoring in that degree and said, listen, you guys can do what you want, but we wanna let you know that this department will probably be obsolete before you graduate because there are gonna be no jobs in graphic design anymore. AI is taking them all over. 
and so she changed her major. My son was finished, was three years into computer programming, and he, they didn't tell him this, but he's smart enough to, to read the headlines and see what's going on and realize, I'm not going to have a job <laughs> if I continue down this path. Uh, AI is doing all the coding. Not all of it. Right now, they're still coders, of course, but it's rapidly coming that way. All coders now still use AI, at least to do a first draft, and before long, they won't even need the human coders. So it's impacting everything, and I, I just think uh, it's a setting of the stage. Jesus said in Matthew 16 that we need to look at the signs of the times. The first century Jewish leaders missed it, and we don't want to make that same mistake today. So, any, Anybody else? Good questions. Yes? Yeah. Could you expand on the Gog and Magog uh, conflict and how that's being set up right now and where we're at in the Yeah, I think it's been being set up since the Ukraine battle because Ukraine, of course, is former, uh, it's, a, it's a Russian area. So Gog and Magog comes from Ezekiel 38 and 39. Gog is from the land of Magog and all the other uh, nations around there. Uh, in modern-day geography is Turkey, Syria, Libya, Sudan, uh, Iran, and, of course, Russia. And so there's this northern alliance that Ezekiel prophesied that's going to come against Israel in the end times, and uh, God is going to supernaturally intervene and defeat that alliance and protect Israel, and Israel comes out having vanquished all their foes. And that's the reason at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation, uh, Israel is in peace. And this Antichrist signs a treaty that basically says, now that you've vanquished all your enemies, we're going to sign a treaty with you and give you the freedom to go in and worship and set up your temple and, you know, do your religion. And for the first three and a half years, that works fine. And then the Antichrist sets up what both Daniel and Jesus mentioned by name, the abomination of desolation. And he, he says, now I've got you where I want you. Guess what? You've got to worship me. I'm God. I'm taking the throne. You're not going to be able to worship Yahweh anymore. You worship me, and if not, we're going to cut off your heads. And that's what the second three and a half years of the tribulation are all about. So I think we, don't, we won't know till after it happens, but it sure seems like all the key players are coming together in this alliance. And what I would watch for next, which I think is going to be very telling, is what happens over the winter with Russia and Ukraine. Do they finally put an end to Ukraine? Uh, don't listen to what the media says. There's no way. I mean, Ukraine has already lost the battle. It's all just pretend. It's all for show. But if they, if they then turn south and start taking the next few regions, then, you know, that's a big telling sign to me. But, you know, it's really hard to predict how the Luciferians think. I, I've been doing that forever, and I've made too many mistakes. So now I've just kind of admitted, you know what, they're, it's just hard to know what they're doing, right? You know, um, we really thought in 2016 that Hillary was their guy. That's what I really believed. Um, and uh, my family moved uh, out of a major area to just kind of be more remote, <laughs> off the grid. And then, uh, you know, then they put Trump in. And uh, I know now why that is. I talk about that in chapter in the second volume. I have a whole section on Trump. But at the time, it was it really caught me off guard. It's like. What's going on? Well, then, then I figured, you know, then it was pretty obvious, I think, to the whole world why they put Trump in there. They, we don't have elections. We have selections. Uh, that's been the case for decades. Um, ever since they went to digital vote tabulation systems, 
you don't, I mean, it's just pretend. It's all pretend. Um, so uh, so I, I think uh, next year is going to be really interesting, really, really interesting. Um, doesn't mean any, you know, doesn't mean we're going to see the rapture that next year. Doesn't even mean we're going to see the one world system next year. I mean, who knows? But it's certainly we're closer now than ever before. Closer now than ever before. Yeah. In your first book, you made some discussion on uh, weather. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, yeah. That's on record. Yeah, it's called geoengineering. They've been manipulating and controlling the weather for decades. Back during the Vietnam War, they had a whole weather modification squadron that would make it rain on the Ho Chi Minh Trail whenever they needed it to as a strategic advantage. Uh, other globalist entities like China have a weather modification office. You can go online and look at it. Um, We've got patents, we've got government contractors and companies out there. If you Google them, you see there's websites. They actually show you the technology that they're using to control and manipulate the weather. They can make it rain, they can make it drought, they can make it snow, they can make whatever they want. They've been uh, researching steering hurricanes for a long time, but probably in the 90s is when they first started really being able with a limited effect to do that and then over the 20 years or so since, 30 years, they've, they've really perfected it. So uh, there is still real weather, no doubt. I mean, and ultimately, Satan's not going to be able to ultimately control the weather. That's God's territory, and the Scriptures tell us that. But Satan is trying to mimic everything God does, and his earthly accomplices have been doing, they call it geoengineering or solar radiation management or uh, stratospheric aerosol injection. Those are some of the scientific terms for it. Uh, all of this, they deny, deny, deny for years because it was secret. And then now, in the last 10 years, they've come right out like they usually do and said, of course we're doing it. We've always been doing it. What, what are you talking about? And like, like they weren't denying it. Same thing with the UFOs. You know, for 70 years, we're not studying and watching and tracking UFOs. And then in 2017, they come out and say, yeah, we are. And now we've got open congressional hearings and $22 million budgets and starting the Space Force and all these things. So this is the pattern of them. But if you read that chapter in my book, it's called Geoengineering. Uh, and it gives you this, the documentation. All three books have extensive bibliographies. Volume one has 38 pages at the back. Volume two, 50-something pages. In volume three, no, volume two, 66 pages, and then the new one has 50-something pages. You can easily do your own research. Uh, you know, I encourage people, don't take my word for it, uh, you know, study it, but absolutely 150% guaranteed the Luciferians are controlling the weather, no doubt about it. So, somebody else. All right. Well, I'd love to leave some of these books here so i'll wrap up here close us in prayer i'll stick around if you want but the box is over there if you want to meet me over there they're 20 bucks for the uh the book it's the same price you'd get it on amazon or at the not by works uh, website but of course you'd pay shipping uh and uh, i like i said i brought two or three on the trip of the others because we were meeting some friends where my wife is uh hanging out this week with one of her dearest friends in the world uh and uh they took some of them so if anybody wants volume one or two i'm happy to to, to, uh, to, to sell those too. So anything else? Speak now or forever?
email me, I guess. <laughs> All right, let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the fact that we have a God who's never surprised, never caught off guard. And Lord, you are in full control of all that is unfolding. And Lord, when we think the world is uh, falling apart, Lord, help us to remember it's really just falling into place according to your plan. And so these are uh, unsettling times and yet exciting times because we, we see prophecy rolling out before our very eyes. So Lord, give us uh, wisdom and encouragement. Help us to continue to trust in you and walk by faith. And we'll uh, give you all the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.